Hello, hello, welcome to Cup of Taboo, where I discuss all things considered taboo. I'm your host, Tyler, and I'm tired. <laughs> Today, I will be talking about another cult. It's about time. Oh, there's a bug on me. This is also from, like, now, basically, and it also included celebrities. This is going to be about Nexium, a modern-day sex cult. I hope you're ready for your weekly dose of strange, vile, and terrible, served in a cup of taboo. I'm not sure if you've ever heard about Nexium. It was pretty much all over the news a couple of years ago. It was massive scandal. Huge, huge. It was a cult that technically disguised itself as a self-improvement slash business seminar type of establishment. There were celebrities involved and the whole thing was just a mesh. So there is so much information that needs to go into this. So it's definitely going to be a two-parter. Uh, which means this episode I'm going to do an overview of the group itself, as well as the ins and outs of sort of what happened in the group. And then in the next episode, I will discuss how a select group of individuals brought the whole thing crashing down, and also some of their terrifying stories and what they had to go through in order to get to the point of actually bringing it down. If you hear the dogs barking, I'm so sorry. They're, they've gone, they've gone ticky-mad. They've got the zoomies downstairs. Warning. The following podcast contains content that some listeners might find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. So this is really bad. As a woman, I get so angry by what happened in this group. Never mind just as a woman, just as a human being, I get so mad. Just with the amount of manipulation and brainwashing that happened. And it's just, it's so upsetting. I'm, I'm just, I'm just warning you now. Some of the stuff is really not Ayoba. It's not cool. Uh, I read a book called Scarred by Sarah Edmondson, which is her story from the inside. She was a survivor. It's very interesting, but also horrifying. I also watched two very interesting documentaries. One was called Seduced. Very interesting from the point of view of one of the victims, as well as a documentary called The Vow, which is basically the people who brought it down their thip bits and pieces. The interesting thing about this company or group is that they insisted that everything be filmed and recorded because the guy who was in charge of it was such a narcissist, you know. So that actually ended up being majority of the documentaries and a lot of the evidence that was used against them. So it's actually quite funny. It went, it turned around and bit them in the butt. Also, this is uh, pretty much a, a bit of a dig at MLM companies because as you will see that this cult was basically an MLM company slash pyramid scheme. So let me quickly give you a quick breakdown of what an MLM company and a pyramid scheme is for those of you who live under a rock and somehow don't know. I do want to do a whole ass episode on these in the future just because I find them fascinating and I find the whole concept very interesting. And I've seen some really terrible things that have happened because of these kinds of schemes. But in for now, I'm feeling a brief overview. MLM is short for multi-level marketing, and according to Investopedia, it is defined as a monetary strategy used by direct sales companies to encourage existing distributors to recruit new distributors. So your recruits and their recruits become your downline. So basically, you're going to have one person at the top who has recruited a certain amount of people who then recruit another amount of people and each downline earns that upline money, honey. So the people at the top are the ones that make nice money. The people who are at the bottom, not not so much. They generally end up going into debt. They generally end up losing things, not making any money, spending more money than they make, and it just ends up destroying their lives. <laughs> Boss babe, you know? <laughs> and uh, a business owner... It's not. It's just manipulation from the top of the company, basically. Pyramid schemes, they are technically illegal. It is income based on how many people you recruit, not based on the number of sales of product. At least with an MLM company, 
you know, it's the your income is based on how much product your downline sells. Your permit schemes, on the other hand, generally do not have any tangible products, and they you you get paid by the amount of people that you recruit somehow, which you know they often make you pay a joining fee or something like that, and then that's how the the people get paid. MLMs use techniques to suppress doubt and increase acceptance of the marketer's false representations of reality. Promoters of these schemes are masters in the use of hyperbole to recruit people and keep them highly motivated to continue participating, often long after it would be apparent to a neutral observer that the participants were not achieving anything close to expected returns on their investments of money and time. So keep that in mind. They're very good at using the hyperbole. Like, oh, babe, you're just going to make the most money. Uh, 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 you know what I'm saying? That's basically, they're very good with their wording, very good at almost guilt tripping their downline into, or their people, should I say, their, their what do what do they call it now? Their distributors. They're very good at guilt tripping them. Like, oh, babe, you just didn't reach your targets this month. You're going to have to try harder next month, hey? Now that I've given you that brief overview, I just want to quickly explain the big bad douche, the kingpin, the grandmaster, the top of this little pyramid, Keith Raniere. Keith was born on the 26th of August in 1960 in Brooklyn, New York. He described himself as a childhood genius. He said he could form full sentences at the age of one. He was reading at the age of two and an accomplished pianist at the age of 12. When he was eight years old, his parents got divorced, and he had to take care of his mother, who had heart problems. She died when he was 18. He went to a college in New York that I cannot pronounce the name, but I'm going to try. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And he supposedly graduated in 1982 with three majors, bio, maths, and physics. However, you know, he, he did proclaim to be a genius, and he... Actually, in the 1989 Australian Guinness Book of Records, he was listed as having the highest IQ possible, and he was put into the Mega Genius Group with an IQ of 240. But if you look at his uh, college majors, his GPA was only a 2.26, which I believe is a, a, a sort of is an average of a C minus according to the American system. Which I mean, I'm pretty sure that that isn't something that a 240 IQ would be achieving. But, you know, I wouldn't know. I don't have that IQ, and I uh, haven't got a degree yet. So I suppose I've got no feet to stand on, huh? So before Nixium, after he went to college, he became an Amway salesperson. And now this is also, this is an MLM company that sells health, beauty, home care, and all those sorts of products. And it's actually quite funny. I did record this episode a couple days ago, and I didn't like it, so I'm re-recording it. And in that recording i was like you know amway is quite popular in america and all over the world i don't know if there's any in south africa and then i drove to a shoot on when was it i drove to a shoot on thursday and as i was driving through cape town town i saw an amway i shit you not i was like what but anyway so that's just a fun fact we do have an amway here so cool he, anyway, back to the story. He then created a company called Consumers Byline, which was also a, I don't know if it was an MLM or, or a permit scheme, but it was basically people could purchase memberships where they would be able to purchase discounted groceries and additional items. So then every current member who recruited new members would earn commissions on those new members. And it grew to about 250,000 members at its peak, and it had an annual, it's also, its peak revenue was around $33 million in a year, which is, I mean, that's insane. But it actually went under investigation as a pyramid scheme, a scheme, and in 1996, he had to sign a consent order in New York to stop the company. And he had to pay a fine of $40,000 and accept a permanent ban on participating in any chain distribution schemes, which he obviously did not listen to. He was also involved in something called National Health Network in the 90s, which was an MLM selling vitamins. So he was very into this whole uh, structure, if you will. He was like, yes, triangles are my favorite shape. I'm going to use this for my whole life. Once he had to close down Consumers Byline, he was like, what am I going to do next? I needed to start something else. 
And he actually turned his attention to something called the human potential movement, which was becoming very popular at the time where people were like, I'm going to do better with my life kind of thing, you know, like everyone has the chance to do amazingly self-help, all that kind of stuff. And what he would do is he actually studied similar schemes who focused on human potential and he learned he 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 grew you know he he studied he learned he mimicked and then he founded something called executive success programs in 1998 with Nancy Salzman as co-founder quick little bit of information on Nancy is she claimed to have previously worked as a psychotherapy nurse but she was actually into, sorry, she was actually into alternative psychotherapy practices, such as neuro-linguistic programming and, and hypnotherapy. So neuro-linguistic programming is basically a way of talking that you can almost influence people's decisions. It's So basically, it's, it's the way that you talk and the way that you, I don't know how to explain it without doing actions with my body but it you'll mimic others and you know you make them feel comfortable and you'll like certain sentences you'll say at a different speed or a different pitch or a different tone and that apparently like influences the person's brain and stuff and they actually ended up uh, using this as a behavior mo modification technique in Nexium. As you can tell, I'm not any sort of neurolinguistics anything because I can't talk at all. <laughs> Part of their sales pitch when they started this company was promoting Keith as the smartest man in the world with his 240 IQ. They also went ahead and said that he was a great humanitarian and an ethicist. They said that he was like a monk with no base human needs. He didn't need sex, he didn't need life pleasures, and he had no possessions. And this is how they would get people to join. They were like, look at this great man, he can teach you so many things, he's so smart. He wasn't. He was a dick. In actuality, he earned 10% interests in all assets, proceeds, and property of Nexium. So all that whole, no possessions, no life, anything, rubbish. They referred to Keith as Vanguard, and they referred to Nancy as Prefect. Already, red flags slapping me in the face. So I would like to just quickly explain sort of how the, the company worked. So when they started, they started giving classes on success and being better and improving the world and how the world needed to be a better place. So what they did is they had these things called intensive programs where they would well it, it ended up being called ESP executive executive success programs but they called their specific uh, classes intensive programs so this is actually how they ended up getting their recruits so they would draw you in they would say come to this three day five day or 16 day intensive program the most common one was five days they would say come to this you're gonna learn something you're gonna walk away and you're gonna be a million times better and then once you finish the shorter course so normally it was a three or the five day they would then convince you to carry on and do the 16 day course so the five day course was normally two thousand seven hundred dollars and the 16 day course was seven thousand dollars so the five day course once you completed that they would say, well, you've already done the first five days of the 16-day intensive. You may as well finish it. You're, so, you've, you're coming so far. Imagine the success you can achieve if you do a little bit more. So they would like what they would do is they would actually, they used a lot of techniques that are used in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what a lot of psychologists use. And But they would twist it in like a, a sick, Way. They would twist it for their own agenda, but let me quickly let me let me quickly explain the the way that the five day intensive worked because this was the one that I got the most information on. This was quite a common one. So day one, people would arrive, and then they would go through the rules and rituals of the group. They would go through communication and being at cause, rapport, and to be or not to be. Then day two, they would go through something called good and bad. Then they would go through honesty and disclosure. Then they would go through pride and prejudice and then persistence. Day three, 
The topics were Parasite or Producer, Part 1, Parasite or Producer, Part 2, Shifter, and Work Value. Then on day 4, they would have The Fall, Nature of Emotions, and An Exploration of Meaning. And on day 5, they would go through Building an Excited State, Civilization, Tribute, and The Mission. So now already you can hear in those, Rituals. That's a big fat red flag to me. Then persistence another like why why then parasite and producer it's it's all like all these little words you just look at it and you're like ah. obviously I, I'm, I can't say because I would probably be one that would be sucked straight into one of these courses and be like yes I'm learning <laughs> so they also had these really weird things that when you when you entered the room you had to bow at pictures of Nancy and Keith uh, they would have to wear different colored sashes. So everyone who was new had to wear a white sash. They would have to say thank you at the end to Nancy and Keith as well. And if you ever brought up how weird it was, they would call you defiant. And then they would have modules to address all the concerns that were normally brought up to slowly break people down and normalize the things that should not be normalized. And that was just like the beginning. That's how they would start, and this is how they would get people in. Because a lot of people, I'll explain it later, when they go through the exploration of meaning, they generally had a breakthrough about themselves. And they were like, oh my gosh, this is what's been holding me back. And then they would go and do more. So they had something called Rational Inquiry, which apparently had about 49 modules, which is a lot. And this was the psychotherapy and teachings, methods, and practices of the human potential movement groups that Keith had studied. They referred to it as tech. So Keith supposedly wrote all this tech, and this is what they were teaching. So it was basically verbal and behavioral methods of intervention in interpersonal relationships to modify attitudes, thinking, effects, and behaviors. So they were like, yes, this is scientific, and it will cure illness even. They they were like, this is going to change the whole world. They even claimed that it, they were trying to get it patented. The thing is, the patent office, or the patent office, sorry, kept denying it because they were like, no, this is not patentable. And also, this has been done before, my dudes. But yeah, they had there on all of their, their work, um, patent pending, to kind of portray the scientific uh, image, should I say. The other thing that they would do is they would make you sign an NDA almost upon starting these courses. So you were not allowed to show anyone the course material or talk about it even because you signed these NDAs. Executive success programs was also one of the courses and often they would have unqualified therapists giving therapy which can cause damage to the psyche because you are not a professional. They also would base it on like unvalidated ideals, like pushed by Ranieri. And then they would also make people pay hundreds and thousands of dollars to get these courses. So what they would do is they would almost target people who they could see, you know, wanted more with their lives and they were feeling like they had something missing or they wanted more, they wanted to be better. And then they would, what they would do is they would hone in on those things that these people had issues with and they would call them disintegrations. And that was one of the very interesting words that they would use. They would be like, oh, that's a disintegration. That's not, that's not okay. We've got to fix that. We've got to integrate that. And in these courses, especially the intensive courses, it was five to 16 consecutive grueling 14 hours days. So they really, they break it, they break the students down by making them exhausted. I mean, I don't know if you've ever sat through a class that's longer than one hour even. You want to pass out. Now imagine sitting in a room for 16, or oh, sorry, 14 hours. Five days in a week. That's exhausting. I can't. My ADD would kick in so hard. I would be doodling on all my little papers. I would be getting in trouble. I would not be good for this at all. But what they would do is they would actually get current students to bring in new students. But when new students came, they would have to fill out all these forms. And in the forms, they would ask, what are your fears? What do you want to work on? Are you going to therapy? Are you a therapist? What is your job? What you, all these very like interesting questions and then what they would do is they would actually weed out people who they thought would not suit the program so if you were an actual therapist you were not allowed to join the program and students who were joining 
were forbidden from seeing actual therapists because it was going to mess with the system. Probably because the actual therapist would be like, uh, that's illegal, you should stop. Please don't carry on with this, you're hurting your brain. But once they, once many people finished the intensive courses, so remember I said they wore sashes, they would be introduced to the stripe path, which was basically a a system to indicate rank. And it was a way for the Nexium group and the, the founders to push people to try and get more recruits. Because as humans, inherently, we want to do better. We want to climb the ladder of whatever it is that we want to climb. And we want to impress. That's That's inherent in most of us. And what they would have is the white sash would be student. Then on that white white on that white sash, for every student that you brought in, you would get a little stripe. I think it's a little red stripe. And once you reached four stripes, you would then move up to the next colored sash, which was yellow. And when you reached yellow, you became a coach, which meant that you would apply and participate in unpaid internships and you would have to recruit three new students within six months to be able to carry on so from your yellow sash once you got all your stripes your strepes you would then move up to orange well it should have been once you got all your strepes but they kept pushing the boundaries they kept saying oh okay yeah you see you should be moving up but you've got some issues that you need to deal with so Mm, you should deal with those first. And then once you had supposedly dealt with your issues, they would say, oh, we've added new curriculum to the course. You have to first finish that before you can go up to the next level. Scallums. So once you finished with your yellow sash, you would then move on to orange, which was called proctor. This is where people could actually start earning money. Now, remember, for white and yellow, you're bringing in students. You're Well, not students, sorry. You're bringing in more people. You're not getting paid anything for that. Also, at Yellow, you're technically coaching people. You're doing these exploration of meanings, these therapy sessions with people below you, but for free. And you're doing internships, which means that you're giving courses on other things that you've learned, but you're not getting paid. So when you reach Orange, you're a proctor, and this is where you could start earning. However, you did have to facilitate inquiries, provide coaching, work on committee committees, and you had to do a minimum of 10 hours per week with no pay. They always said, so they said that this would take 9 to 24 months to get to your highest level sash, but it always took longer for the same reasons. They would always add new curriculums. They would always say, oh, but you're not working on your trust issues or, oh, you know, you're allowing fear to step in the way. And they would hold people off because, you know, they were earning money off of them and they didn't want to have to pay them more, essentially. And then eventually the last sash that people could get was a green sash, which was senior proctor. But now, so there were other sashes above that, but they were literally only held by like one person. So Nancy had a different color sash and then two other people had blue sashes, I believe. But those were not things that people would achieve, like aspire to. Green was like number one, the top podium spot. That's what people wanted. And I think they were only... 12? 13? Green sashes? So it was a very difficult thing to get to. But this is how they encouraged members to recruit more members and get more involved and become entrenched in the system. And the thing is, like I said, they they vetted people to find out who were the right people to get to. People who were hungry for success. People who wanted to do well. People who had slight issues. They They would prey on them. But they would always push the requirements. And I think that would also make people want to fight harder. Because it's like, damn it, I want that stupid sash. It's just a piece of material, but I want it. I get it. I freaking get it. And instead, (laughs) another thing that they would do is instead of getting paid for some things, they would get credits towards the next class. So they still had to pay to go to different courses. So if you you know, got to a point where you weren't at really being paid money, they would be like, oh, congratulations, you recruited 20 people this month. Here's some credits towards your next class. And then that was what the people would get. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. 
So this gave the appearance of progress in the sense that one was overcoming obstacles and integrating into a better life, when in actuality it was just the company using them, using people as, I don't know, as something. So what they would do, I mentioned earlier, something called exploration of meaning. So they called it EMs. The higher levels would do these exploration of meanings with people who had issues or who had disintegrations. So they would take the member, they would find out what they were struggling with, and then they would talk them through it and force them to look deep into their minds and get to the root cause of the problems. So they would be like, okay, why are you stressed about this? And that person would be like, well, I don't know. And then they would say, okay, think back to the first time that this happened to you. And the person would sit and think and they would be like, oh, actually, yeah, there is a connection. When I did this, this happened. And then suddenly they would have a breakthrough and they would supposedly be cured of their issues. But the way that they worded things is that they actually almost caused more harm than good because they didn't allow people to work through their problems. They pretty much just told them to forget about their problems, to just put it aside. And I think... As somebody who's been to therapy quite a lot, that that's not how things should work. <laughs> you have to deal with your things, you know? You can't just ignore them and pretend like they're not there because they are there. <laughs> but anyway, the other problem was that none of them were licensed professionals at all. It was just people who had done it themselves that were now giving these courses. And, yeah. Once you had done enough uh, exploration of meanings and you had integrated your issues, they would say that you were at cause. And this means that you were doing kind of well for yourself. You know, you were, you were dealt, you had dealt with that issue. And then they would allow you to start training and become an EMP, which is an exploration of meaning practitioner. But, <laughs> always a but, you had to do a certain number of hours as practice for free. Because like the top people were charging hundreds of dollars to give an EM. And, in the beginning, if you had to give EMs as a, as a noob, you would have to do it for free. But the, like the, the person receiving the EM, so the person who has the issues, would still be paying, but you would not be getting that money. Nixium would be getting that money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They said in their promotional videos that it was like receiving 10 years of therapy in 10 minutes. Sometimes faster is not better you got to do things properly. And in these EMs, they would actually find out what the person's weaknesses and fears were to use later as bargaining power, basically. It was all very messed up. What they would do, remember I said that they called Keith Vanguard and Nancy Prefect, which is like, oh, it's a little bit dodgy. So this was supposedly to make people... I don't know, it was to like sort of show like, oh, I'm your leader, respect me. But anyway, so what they would do is to sort of give off this image that Vanguard was just the most amazing human being on the planet, is they would have something called the V-Week, which was once a year for Vanguard's birthday. How exciting. They all said that it was like an adult summer camp, you know, with without the barbecues because most of them were vegan. And no booze, because none of them drank. And what they would do is that they would have these different objectives at V-Week. So, dancing, swimming, drumming, singing. And you would have to sign up for all these different objectives. And that was, you know, what you would do for a week. You would have these things that you just kept doing. It was constant. It was exhausting. And they, psychologists actually said that this is a... People were put into a state of high arousal which is something that many cults actually use because it exhausts the members, making them more pliable, and it also triggers an addiction response. So when you're in the state of high arousal, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life, and this is it, everything is amazing, and it triggers an addiction response in the brain, which is fascinating. And it's very clever of them to have done that because they knew exactly how to work people. Just a few things about the group is they somehow managed to have the Dalai Lama agree to meet with the inner circle and he actually ended up endorsing the program 
which just goes to show how good these people were at manipulating everything. Okay, to be fair, they did pay him supposedly a million dollars, but at the end there was like a whole thing, like, so they had arranged for him to come and speak to Keith and sign his book or something like that, I don't know. But then Keith was in the news for pedophilia or something and then the Dalai Lama was like no I'm not associating with that so they flew themselves to him and they sweet talked him into being like okay oh you know what maybe maybe I'll come while I'm on my trip to the states or whatever so there's that and it also had there were many celebrities that went through some of the courses some of them stayed most notably Alison Mack who was in Smallville and Nikki Klein who was in Battlestar Galactica there was a director named Mark Vicente, who was actually from Joburg, and an a Canadian actress named Sarah Edmondson. The ex-president from Mexico's son, Emiliano Salinas, was also part of the group. And India Oxenberg, who is Catherine Oxenberg's daughter. Catherine Oxenberg is from royalty, and she was also an actress in Dynasty, I think. So a lot of high level people and on top of that there was also the Bron Bronfman's Bron Bronfman sisters so their father was the Seagram's the guy who did who who has the Seagram's group so multi multi billionaires they also had some weird like relationship things which uh, a lot of open relationships and there was a lot of like partner swapping in a weird way, and it actually came out later that Keith had many girlfriends. He was not the monk that he claimed to be. He was sleeping with a lot of the women, as, I mean, you'll hear later on. So, and it was like, it was very weird. It was very strange. They started a group called, well, the Bronfman sisters, Sarah and Claire, so the heiresses to the Seagram's empire, they started a group called the World Ethical Foundation or the Ethical Science Foundation, which was the thing that actually funded Nexium and all their shenanigans. And it would fund all the legal matters. So they somehow got caught up in this group and they just kept pouring money into it. And this is how they would also get a lot of international people into the group because they would fund these international scholarships. I did that in air quotes because that's how they would get some people across. And it was done illegally, which means that these foreigners were in jeopardy of arrest and deportation, and which kept them even more ingrained in the cult, because they were there, they couldn't leave, they couldn't, they had nothing, nowhere to go. So they started sort of diversifying their cult, or their, their group, sorry, they started diversifying their classes and their courses to attract different people and to earn more money. So I'm going to go through a couple of the, so just, just, just to show you how bad it was, some of the modules had courses like, why is it wrong to have sex with children? And another course was, why we are not a cult? I think when, when a group is saying, when they have an entire course dedicated to why we are not a cult, that's red flags being like, this is a cult. That's a big neon sign with an arrow pointing down saying, this is a cult. This is a cult. But the way that they just manipulated everything, they they really brainwashed these people. So I'm going to go through a couple of the little courses that they had that they mixed up a bit. And I'm going to just sort of give you a little idea of what some of them were. And some of them were really, 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 really terrible. Before I go through that, sorry. I'm all over the place, but I'm just, I'm just going to, before I go through that, I just want to mention a very sad thing that did happen. In 2003, there was a lady named Kristen Snyder who was taking courses in ESP and one day she had a psychological meltdown and she disappeared. They found a suicide note stating that she had attended courses called ESP or Nixium and that she had been brainwashed and that the emotional center of her brain was killed or turned off. This was found in her abandoned car and she also wrote there, do not bother looking for me. They assumed it was a suicide note. She's never been found. So, back to the courses. The first one I'm going to talk about was called Jeunesse. This was started in around 2006, which was, it was a group geared specifically towards women to teach them how to be better, have better relationships, and to manage their emotions better. 
so at first it was like, yes, sisters, this is great. But it was basically low-key teaching them to ignore all red flags and to submit to the men in their lives and be quiet. Keith came up with the curriculum along with Nancy. So here you have a man coming up with a curriculum geared towards women, which, mm, no. And in the beginning, women ended up staying because they, they actually made friends. They made bonds with the other woman. They said it was like a sisterhood. They really felt like it was a nice place to be. They made friends. It was great. They then upgraded the curriculum and they called it Jeunesse Tracks, which included men and women. One example is that women entered relationships because of dependency on another person and that it was because of their deficiencies that they were dependent on this other person. This led to many ending their relationships to try and work on their independence. So if someone was in a happy relationship, actually, no girl, you're dependent. Mm -mm, you got to be more independent. And then they would end their relationships. Never mind if it was a great relationship. <laughs> another, another example is that Woman's expectation of equal pay was unattainable because it costs money to train people when women leave to have babies, which is why women should be paid less. Do you understand now why I get angry just reading the stuff? I can't. They then said men should be paid to do men's jobs and that women should be paid to do women's jobs. It's not interchangeable. <laughs> My blood is boiling. They also said there that women are not entitled to equal rights because they are protected by men. And these women were getting taught the, these things to overcome the troubles of being a woman. How is brainwashing women into thinking this, like I am not as good as a man because I am a woman, how is that training you to overcome the troubles? That's just putting more crap in your mind. They also said in these groups, in all their groups basically, were that Women were made to be monogamous, to serve their boyfriend slash husband, and that men were made to be polygamous, and they were made to have sex with multiple partners, because that's how biology worked. This was pretty much grooming everyone in this group for the things that came later on. He would also... Oh, this makes me so angry... Keith, in, in the curriculum and in the chats and stuff that they used to have, they, he would blur lines between rape and consent. One of the things that he actually said, he's on video saying this, rape was not rape if the victim didn't choose to see it that way. They would, they would, they would be like, you have such a victim mindset to everything. So he said, if you didn't choose to see it as rape, it wasn't rape. A fuck you very much, sir, is what I have to say. Oh, my blood is boiling. So, another group that they started at the same time as Jeunesse was SOP, which stood for Society of Protectors. This was the male version of Jeunesse, but the opposite, pretty much. It was very militant. It was it, it taught them that masculinity, power, and aggression are positive traits, baby. Like, this is what you got to be. Just imagine, like, the boykies. It's a butch training. And that's pretty much what it would do. It was all these macho dudes with like way too much testosterone like having a boy's time hey and they would be trained to take what they want the other person will enjoy it pretty much training them to 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 rape people is how i read that but it was basically like a boot camp filled with these macho man children who had these very bruised little egos because somebody said no to them once and now they were like, oh, yeah. Uh. So one of the things that they had to do, was, it, it was, like I said, very militant. They had to do something called penances if they failed at anything. This was, for example, if you didn't wake up on time, you would then have to have a cold shower or you would have to stand outside in the snow for 30 minutes or we'd plank for three minutes. Certain things like that. And there was higher ranking individuals in the group and the people below them had to follow orders and not hesitate or question at all or else they would get into trouble. And this was now instilling the belief in men that they must just follow orders blindly. Again, grooming the men for things that came later. They then started something called SOP Complete, which was for women to join so that they could experience what it was like growing up as a little boy. 
to see what it was treated, how, how little boys were treated and how difficult it was for them, you know? And they would put these women through hell. They made them do physical labor, physical exercise. They would berate them and say, oh, I don't like what you're wearing. Or when you wear those pink shoes, I get a hard on. Like literally they would go up to the woman who joined this group and they would, they would just talk to them like that to, to get them to understand what it was like to be a guy. And what this actually did is it got the woman to hate themselves because they started blaming themselves for all of the things that were going wrong because that's what they kept pumping into their minds. And it actually ended up making the woman more subservient. And it made them somehow feel grateful for abuse. And it's just, it's like some of the ladies in the interviews were like, I felt bad for being a woman. That's how bad it was. It just, and you ask, like a lot of, a lot of people are like, oh, but if it was so bad, why didn't they just leave? The thing is that when you're in the situation, you're doing what you think is best. You don't go in there thinking anything insidious. You think that this is something that has been developed by a professional and something that will help you in the future. So when you're in it, it's a lot more different from the outside. So at the end of the SOP complete, there were people, they got people to sign up for something called readiness drills for $50 a month, I might add. And there were 629 members in 96 teams. So what they would do is in these teams, they had like groups on WhatsApp or whatever, and they would practice readiness. So at any time of the day, somebody, the leader of the group would send ready to the group and the people of the group had to respond within 60 seconds saying ready to prove that they were ready for anything. And I mean, this was three o'clock in the morning while you're driving, um, 12 o'clock at night. You, you, I mean, you've got your, you're at a kid's play. You got to respond within one minute. And if you didn't, you would have to do a penance. And one of the psychologists in one of the documentaries mentioned that the word, the use of the word ready was very specific because by saying ready every time, you're almost like giving consent to the person, which is actually, like I said, the use of language is so powerful, so powerful. And this is all, all part of the little games that they, that they did with these people's brains. So at round about this time, they, they started doing some really strange science experiments, if you want to call it that. Um, where they had those brain reader thingies, you know, those hats that you put on heads and it reads brain waves. They would use those where they would measure people's brain waves and their reactions to things. Uh, but it was very pseudoscience-y. It, it wasn't very science at all. So what they did is they forced some people to watch terrible things like beheadings and bar fights and stabbings and they would record their brain activity and uh, film their facial expressions and they would see how it how it was and then they would also do it while they were doing these courses to see how it affected them there to see all these kind of stuff and the doctor who performed these texts the uh, texts the doctor who performed these tests actually got his license revoked at the end of all of it so which is great because he should not be doing these kinds of things but anyway one of the things that did happen was that they? There was a man who came to them, and he had really severe uh, Tourette syndrome. For about twenty years, he struggled with his tics and with all the Tourette syndromes. And through EMs and a lot of talking and practice, they technically cured him. And they then tried to do it with more people with Tourette and with people with OCD and other disorders. And, you know, I don't think they did very well. I think he was just the lone outlier. He has a docky on YouTube that, like, he strongly advocates the group, which I kind of understand because they apparently helped him a lot. Um, but that was some of the experiments that they were doing. They made a film on it. They, it was a whole thing. So they then tried to now use this to legitimize the group. Like, oh, we cured Tourette's. Look at us. We are amazing, even though the stuff that they did was just very wrong. So around 2014, they established something called the Ultima Programs, and this was a way to gain new recruits and to keep current members in the hamster wheel that was Nexium. 
One of the groups that they started in this, well, one of the programs, should I say, was called XOSO, which was a fitness program. Yoga, dancing, but also like healthy eating. So Keith selected six women to run this course and to get them to be more close to him. You can understand that all six women that he chose were young, fit, attractive, thin, just the way he liked them. And they were encouraged to recruit similar people. They were told that they could work in this group and possibly earn thousands of dollars a month. They were like, you know what, because we're going to open these centers everywhere, healthy living, yada, yada, yada. But this was actually just prime breeding ground for the sicko to select the people that he wanted to prey on. Members, like the, the, the top members who were chosen to run this, it was a, a very prestigious role. They got to work close to Keith, which for some reason everybody wanted to do because they made him out to be this pariah figure, you know, this amazing godlike figure, and they wanted to be close to him. So they were like, yes, we'll do it. We'll, we'll run this program. Uh, but they had to be available to him at all times of the day and be at his beck and call. So if he would phone, he often did these weird long walks at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 2 a.m., very weird times of the day. But he would call and be like, hey, let's go for a walk. And you would be like, you would have to say yes. Okay, let's do it. This meant that these poor people, these poor women, were perpetually sleep deprived, which means that they were easily manipulated. Another cult tactic. Tactic. <laughs> so they had to, literally, they hardly got any sleep because they were constantly working. They were constantly doing courses. And then they had to be ready to go for a walk and talk with Keith at whatever time of the day. Then they had to get up at five in the morning again and you know, just do this really difficult life. And also they were, the way that they ate, they they had to stay thin. So everyone was counting their calories and they were making sure that they were healthy. And Keith, the piece of shit that he was, some woman who he knew the issues with their weight or the way that they looked, some days he would, while he's going on a walk with them, he would be like, oh, you're looking a bit large. I'm sorry. You know what's going to look large? My fist in your face. When I punch you. So it's just all these tiny little mind tactics. Yeah, little tiny things. When certain ladies in this group weren't getting paid, Claire Bronfman, who actually at this point was now the financier of Nexium, would say that they didn't deserve to be paid. Because they, they were entitled. And obviously they needed to work on things. And... The, there was ethical breaches, and until those breaches were healed, they had no right to be compensated. So, I mean, you can just see, this is just a mess. It's all just a mess, and it's just, ugh. In 2015, there was a course started called the Ethicist Course, which was basically teaching pure devotion to Keith, as well as constantly pushing a sacrificial agenda so they would constantly play movies like Passion of the Christ and certain movies where there was a lot of sacrifice happening, which was indoctrinating the people who took this course into pure devotion and, you know, it almost training their brains to say that they'll do anything for him. And one of the interviews, the lady actually said, after she did that course, she said, she was like, I would die for Keith after that, and I didn't understand why. It's just all mind games. It's all mind manipulation. Everything was constant escalation at this point. So, I mean, when they started in 1998, it was all about being better. Now suddenly it was just pure devotion to Keith and, you know, sacrificial agenda. And if you think about it, constant escalation. If you think about other cults where it ended in absolute tragedy, it had a very similar like trajectory. They were being trained that they needed to do anything for this leader. If you think about um, Jonestown, they were they drank the Kool-Aid. Who's to say that these members, if it got to the point, they would have drank the Kool-Aid as well for Keith? That's what it would have ended up if it didn't blow up the way that it had, which is incredibly sad and absolutely terrifying. But back to the Ultima programs. One of the programs was called The Knife, or The Knife of Aristotle, Aristotle, which they basically used as a kind of news outlet. So uh, there was a lot of negative press at this point about Keith, and a lot of uh, a couple of people had left the group, and they were 
making claims that it was a cult and that he was a sexual predator and all that kind of stuff. And this specific group, the Knife, was a very interesting way of propaganda where they would go through, they called it a scientific analysis of existing media, where they would fact check and cut through fake news with a knife. (laughs) So it was a very clever way of them being able to determine what news would and would not get to the members of the group. So if, for example, there was a bad press article out there about Keith or Nexium, they would spin it to the members of the group if they had any concerns. Like, okay, but I read this in the paper. But then they would say, oh, but you can see it's fake news, right? You can see that this is fake. Keith would never do something like that. He he would never. And if there was something in the news in a certain worded in a certain way, they would twist the words to make sure that it was... Ranieri's spin on everything. It's just propagands all over the place. This isolated the outside influences and it it actually, they got to a point where the people were only allowed to get their information from this news source. They weren't allowed to get any information or any news from outside sources because they were then considered rebellious or jeopardizing the community. It was just getting worse and worse and worse. And then The worst group of all was called DOS. This was a highly secret organization. Uh, I couldn't find out exactly when it started, but it it started to get... It's actually part of the reason that it was brought down. The whole group was brought down. So it was very insidious. The DOS stands for, supposedly, Dominus Obsequious Sororium, which roughly translates to Lord Over the Obedient Female Companions. Inside the group, they just called it The Vow. So this was like super secret. When I say super secret, I mean very secret. And it was only for women. They used Nexium course materials that taught that women had certain weaknesses or tendencies, such as being over-emotional or reveling in victimhood that interfered with their personal growth and personal satisfaction. Professional growth and personal satisfaction, sorry. They also kept pushing the woman must be monogamous, men can be polygamous. They would push these things. And again, this was another purely pyramidal structure. Keith was considered the Grand Master. He had a line of first line masters beneath him who would then recruit people who they called their slaves. Promise you, they called them slaves. It was kept among the first line masters that Keith Keith was involved at all. What they would do is the first line master, for example, we're going to go with Alison Mack because she was one of them. She would approach somebody that she was close to and she would say, listen, I'm part of this. So especially if this person is going through some things or, you know, not really they almost looked like they were getting bored or, you know, they targeted specific people, especially if it was young, thin, pretty woman. They would go up to a lady and they would say, listen, I'm part of this, this sisterhood. I'm part of the sorority, but it's incredibly, incredibly private. Like nobody knows about it. Nobody's allowed to know about it. Do you want to know more? And when the person said, yeah, I want to know more, they would say, okay, but before I tell you, I'm going to need collateral. Which at that point, I'm running in the opposite direction. But they would say, what do you mean collateral? And then the first line master would say, I need you to give me something that could ruin your life so that I know you will not go and take any of the information I'm about to give you and tell anybody about it. And because these poor women were so brainwashed from all of the previous courses that they had done, they would say, okay, what do you need? And then they would either have to give a recorded statement, something about their family or their partner or themselves, they, or a written statement that had been notarized among the same lines, like, oh, my husband beats the kids, or whatever. And they would, or a naked photo of themselves, or a video of themselves doing something. Some people even had to possibly give the deed of their house as collateral. Because that way they would never go and tell anyone about what was going, what was happening in this group. So initially, most people would start with a statement about their family, 
And then their first line master would say, no, that's not juicy enough. Make it worse. And if they said, I don't have anything else to say, they'll say, they would say, well, lie. Just make it as juicy as possible, which they did. And eventually when it was accepted like that this information was juicy enough, they would then be told that the group is called DOS and that they had now been recruited in as this person's slave. But now they would then, they would spin it that it was kind of like a, what's the words I'm looking for now? Like a student-sensei relationship, but they called it master-slave. So they said, okay, cool, now that you're in, this is what the, this is what it entails. You are now my slave, and that means that we're going to be doing readiness, readiness drills whenever I decide. You're going to have to message me every morning with a good morning master and a good night master every night. You will need to ask my permission to eat certain things and you must be ready to respond to me at any time. Also, you need to dedicate one hour a week to doing chores or to doing things for me. Whatever it is I tell you, you have to do. Also, you need to get your own slaves. So they would then be encouraged to get six slaves of their own. So each of the first line masters would need to get six slaves. Those six women would then have to get six slaves of their own. And each slave had to do one hour of work for their master and their grandmaster. So eventually it would be, you know, if it all worked out, it would be that you would be doing nothing throughout the day. Your little downline slaves would be doing everything for you, all of your work that you needed to get done for free. That's what slavery is, isn't it? It's ridiculous. So the first line slaves, I'm just going to quickly name them, were Alison Mack, Lauren Salzman, uh, who is, what's her name, whatever her name was, daughter, Nikki Klein, Daniela Padilla, Bergeron, Rosa Laura Junko, Loretta J. Garza, Davia, and Monica Duran. So there were seven first line masters, and they all started recruiting people. So specifically the people that Keith would like. Now, you, you can sort of see where this is going to go, right? Once these poor women were in, they would then need to give more collateral, you know? Because, you know, it's not like it's enough that they've given what they have. And then the problem was that once they had given that collateral, they were so scared to back out because they had already given something so terrible. And they were so scared that it was going to be leaked or that it was going to be used against them, which is manipulation to the highest degree. So they would stick it out. They were told that they had insecurities if they ever, like, went against anything that their master said. They were like, oh, you need to work on that. See, this is good for you. You've got so many issues. You need this. And they pretty much had to do what they were told. And that was that. Some of them, some of the slaves were, oh, before I start with that, I forgot to mention, they were all branded with a, with a branding iron. And to make it even worse, they were told that this brand was going to be a symbol of the elements, when in actual fact it was Keith Ranieri's initials branded onto the pelvis of these women. They were said it was a bonding exercise, and that it was to symbolize the earth and their sisterhood, when in actual fact they were branded with his initials. Disgusting. Some of the slaves were told that they had to do to have sexual relations with Keith for their own personal growth. The amount of women that this man raped, because it wasn't there, it wasn't consensual. They were told, this is for your personal growth, I need you to go and seduce Keith. Because he told his first line master send me this one and she would do it because she was also sleeping with him and just wanted to be in his good books but anyway this is where i'm going to end it today i'm i'm done talking about this for now i will be back with how everything was brought down and some of the terrifying terrifying stories of what some of these poor women went through and men and men and I will explain how everything happened, how it was brought down, and where they are today. Uh, by they, I mean Keith and the bad guys, you know, Keith and Nancy. That's her name, Nancy. So as always, thank you so much for listening to Cup of Taboo. I really, really appreciate it. 
If you enjoy the show, please go rate and review me on Apple Podcasts or on Reason or on my website. That would be amazing. And, uh, yeah, be sure to come back next time for a discussion of how this mess was brought down. Please follow me on Instagram at cupoftaboo underscore podcast. Facebook is just cupoftaboo. You can send me an email on cupoftaboo at gmail.com. Until then, this is Tyler. And don't forget to drink some water. Go hydrate, you sexy bitch. Okay, bye.